This is hell. Live from late capitalism where property has more rights than people, this is hell and nowhere is that more evident than when you consider imperialism and its partner in crime, colonialism, which has erased entire indigenous societies and their cultures, transforming the land to suit the occupier. In a few minutes, we will be speaking with human rights attorney Noura Erekat, who posted the Boston Review article, Designing the Future in Palestine. Palestinian women and feminist organizations are reimagining what liberation can look like beyond national independence. Beyond that national independence in a more statist response to occupation is an alternative that isn't satisfied with incrementalism and the slow drip drip of rights and freedoms even if those ever emerge it's also not a top-down approach but a grassroots one as in the roots of a family within the household social interactions and the consideration of liberation being for everyone today Nora will help us consider that alternative approach for true independence. Nora is associate professor at Rutgers University in New Brunswick in uh, New Jersey in the Department of Africana Studies and the program in criminal justice and author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine. She is a 2022 Marguerite Casey Foundation Freedom Scholar. The foundation supports leaders who work to shift the balance of power in their communities toward working people and families and who have the vision and capacity for building a truly representative economy. Nura is on Twitter at the number four, Nura, that's four, N-O-U-R-A. And you can find out more about her at her website, NuraErakat.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live streaming, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, how are you? How's your week been going so far? Good. Pretty toasty. I was prepared for the worst, you know, because Lindsay said that this uh, heater was out and this little porch you got me stuck in here. I thought I'd be chattering my teeth and knocking my knees. And then what happened? That's all right. It's kind of warm today, even though it's dreary. Is the uh, heater not working? It's kaput. I think I have a theory on that. What's what's your theory, Chuck? That you can't run that space heater on high. Huh? Uh, I gave I gave the uh, exact same heater to my girlfriend for Christmas several years ago, and she liked it so much that she bought one for her office at her work at her actual workplace. Yeah. And any time that she she told me this last night, she said, "Oh yeah, anytime you turn those heaters on high, it uh, blows the circuit downstairs in my office building." Seems like a setting they should just leave <laughs> off. <laughs> exactly. So I should have, if I had known that, maybe we could have saved that. But we'll be getting a replacement for you guys soon. So immediately after today show, I'm going to see my dentist who's going to put a screw in my upper jaw so I can get a crown to replace a significant part of a tooth I had a root canal on, or in, whatever it is, over the last couple of weeks. And my understanding is this process is painful and lengthy. So I'm hoping that it won't be so bad that I can't talk because we have a Patreon podcast to do tomorrow exclusively for subscribers to This Is Hell on Patreon. So I got that to look forward to today, and again, everyone, poverty sucks, and it did a real number on my teeth. If you were on, on uh, you know, the whole part of that whole Medicare for All crowd, we saw how that whole thing went belly up. So can you do a favor for those people who are elderly, disabled, and poor who do get Medicare? 
and have it cover dental x-rays. And as I mentioned when speaking with epidemiologist Rob Wallace earlier this week, Medicare no longer covers blood tests, which are kind of important in diagnosing patients' health issues like, you know, whether they have cancer or not, whether they will soon die or not, those kind of things. So while I appreciate the Medicare for All campaign, everyone should have health insurance. That is affordable. That's definitely the case. Keep in mind that Medicare is getting worse and worse and worse. Hell, the Biden administration is even working on privatizing the system in the exact same way Trump was trying to do, which will make Medicare even worse. And that's why that whole yelling back and forth during the State of the Union address over the denial by both the Democratic and Republican Party that they were thinking about privatizing Social Security and Medicare was a complete farce on both sides. Also, those who campaigned for Medicare for All, why was everything covered in your plan? Why was all the stuff I mentioned that's not covered going to be covered if Medicare for All passed? But when it didn't, those campaigners did nothing to improve Medicare for the elderly, the poor, and the disabled. It's like they were saying, hey, if we get Medicare too, then it has to be good. But if it's only for old, poor, disabled people, it can continue to suck. That's why that whole thing at the State of the Union address was just nonsense. Dan, more important than any of that, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, when we take over the means of production, what can we produce once in a while as a treat? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets their choice of This Is Hell merchandise. You can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. Uh, and, you know, you can uh, post it at Patreon if you're a Patreon subscriber. And you can email it to us, but because this is the last hour of this week's shows, uh, you have to email thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth. Dan, what's Jeff doing during the Moment of Truth this week? This week, Jeff spills the secret version of Victoria and Abdul. We got a message via F-book from listener Michael A., who contacted us in December to suggest we interview Freeway Rick Ross, the drug dealer caught up in the illegal financing of the Contras through the sale of crack, part of that whole Iran-Contra affair. You can read all about it in the book The Dark Alliance, the CIA, the Contras, and the crack cocaine explosion by the late, great Gary Webb, or you can hear our conversation with him about the book from right around that time. It was published way back in 1998. Uh, An interview you can hear right now on our Patreon page when you search on Gary's name, Gary Webb. So listener Mike Michael A. has another suggestion for us. Michael writes, Hi, gang. I understand that my recommendations are not likely to be interviewed, but perhaps you'll find them interesting. I sure do. Today's submission for review is the author of the Toxic Travel Guide, Ireland as You've Never Seen It Before. As a caveat, I'm familiar with this author's work through their YouTube channel. As a relevant aside, I've been listening to This Is Hell from 2019 to present working in a fabrication shop. I've got a lot a lot of hours to catch up on the show. Somewhere around January 20th, Alex was saying he wanted something fun to revisit, but it was difficult to think of an interview from 15 years ago. With that in mind, please consider checking out this Irish rascal young man who is talking crap to universities' faces. He's an oddball. I would gladly send you guys a copy of the book if you're remotely interested. This is for fun. Thanks for the show and all. Till next rant, Matthew. Thanks, Matthew. The Toxic Travel Guide, Ireland, as you've never seen it before. Sounds interesting, and and we'll look into it. But if you are listening, Matthew, or for anybody who's listening, when it comes to tourism, go find the new documentary, View, 
V-I-E-W, online. It's this creepy doc lacking any narration that just shows how cruise ships that moor in small towns in Norway completely block the residents' beautiful view of the fjords with these 10-story high monster cruise ships. And then the passengers all go out on their balconies and stare at the residents below who are now the view. Other than natural sound, the only thing you hear is the public address system of the cruise ships, which are blasted through loudspeakers to a near deafening level on shore and throughout the local village. Problem is, you try to find a movie called View on Google. I'd suggest searching on the word View and then adding in documentary, the word Norway, and cruise ships. It's really difficult to find. Yep, tourism is evil and is a huge cause of inequality globally, wherever the local economy, whenever the local economy depends upon it, as sociologist uh, William I. Robinson explained on our show in the past. You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com with your guest suggestions or topic suggestions, and if you do, we'll likely share them on air, and if we have your guest or topic suggestion on the show, we will thank you personally during that interview. Coming up, Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Jeff Dorchin will be delivering this week's moment of truth, and we will tell you what's happening next week here on This Is Hell. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. And that is also the case with Palestinians who face an unjust law imposed upon them by an occupier, a law that no way reflects justice. But there is a new way being considered by Palestinians for liberation, for true liberation. Here to explain, human rights attorney Noura Arakat posted the Boston Review article, Designing the Future in Palestine, Palestinian Women and Feminist Organizations Are Reimagining what liberation can look like beyond national independence. Welcome to This Is Hell, Nora. Thank you for having me, Chuck. Thank you for being on our show. I've been uh, really wanting to have you on the show for a very long time. I'm looking forward to this conversation a lot. And this writing is absolutely fantastic because I think it brings about a perspective and a view that we are not hearing whatsoever here in the United States. You start by writing, Vivian Sensur is excited about wheat, More than 10,000 years ago, she explains, visionaries in the Fertile Crescent domesticated it and began to transform it into the croissant, pita, and baguettes that feed the world today. Sensor studies seeds as a way to design new things the way that her ancestors did. In 2014, she founded the Heirloom Seed Library and then spent the next four years searching for heirloom varieties for preservation and propagation. Many of these seeds, all indigenous to Palestine, are threatened because of colonial regulation of Palestinian lands and lives. Israel has forced other spaces onto uh, other species onto Palestinian farmers for the sake of efficiency and scale, though Israel maintains one of the largest heirloom seed libraries at the Avara Institute. While the Institute maintains an experimental uh, orchard, the seeds themselves are off-limits. Sansur insists that while the settler sovereign took our seeds away from us, they don't have the story and the system of knowledge associated with the seed. What does that say to you about the foreign occupation of land when the occupier knows how to take seeds away from the people being occupied but has no knowledge of that seed? Is that in any way a kind of metaphor for foreign occupation, imperialism, and colonialism more generally? 
No, I think you're right to point this out, Chuck. I just want to take a step back before directly responding to your question to highlight that one of the reasons this article is even a departure from a lot of my writing as a legal scholar is that it's pivoting, as I've done in a lot of my work, I've tried and pushed, is to pivot us out of these diplomatic state-centric models that really try to fit the, the question of Palestine and the freedom struggle that we're engaged in, you know, trying to fit a square into a circle, right? They want to fit our entire history and story and struggle into a pre-existing framework of what does political conflict look like? How do two nations battle over, you know, a singular piece of land? And so oftentimes the discourse that we get is completely, you know, at, at best it's perverted and um, it's a perversion of the reality and fails to adequately communicate that what's at stake is not merely right some sort of political compromise which in and of itself in that story is choose the the maldistribution of power but is a story about survival is a story about belonging to the land is a story about um you know nativity and 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 what it means to be in in relationship to the land and not merely in relationship to a political project which is why so often right we get these awful solutions most recently the Trump administration's right uh, deal of the century, which was explicitly an apartheid plan that proposed to put Palestinians into Bantu stands, right? As if all we wanted was a sliver of land and a, you know a mound of dirt to put a flag in. It completely misses the point that Palestinians aren't seeking government. Palestinians are seeking return to their homelands. Palestinians are seeking a rehabilitation of their lives and livelihoods as peoples who, who are um, connected to a place, who are connected to stories. And so Vivian, what Vivian is doing is resurrecting that story precisely, which is what is the story of our relationship to land? Not merely for right um, some sort of um, capitalistic privatization of the land that wants to increase its productivity for export sale um, exploitation. But if we are planting seeds, there's a relationship even between us and the seeds. There's a relationship, right? And she continues in that story um, about a, a particular seed, Abu Samra, you know, the dark one, right? It's a wheat plant with, with dark whiskers at the bottom. And even the relationship that people have to a particular cake biscuit um, that's created with it, right? And so these things are uh, really speak to this broader issue that help us just break free of the shackles of these debilitating, perverted frameworks that cannot possibly narrate our condition of unfreedom, nor chart the path for how is it that we achieve it. So is the problem then thinking of Palestine as a Western-like, a Western-style state? Is that is that thinking of it as a Western-like or Western-style state? Is that self-defeating? And is that purposeful by outsiders to try to impose that Western-style state on Palestine? You know, it's not necessarily just a Western, you know, the, the idea is that it's not just Palestine as a Western style state, but even the, the world that we live in today, right? The state centric order, all of that, right? The nation state itself is an, an invention of 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 Europe. And it's a model of, of European enlightenment, this idea of shifting from imperial um, governance in order, you know, and national governance. Now, that's not to discount the fact that this is precisely what colonized peoples fought for 
all colonized peoples fought for self-determination. But the idea was that the that shaking off the yoke of imperial right and colonial domination was the predicate element in order to then move to the next stage of decolonization. The ultimate goal was to create an alternative system besides the one that former colonial powers, primarily Europe, and then, you know, then it's, you know, settler colonial offshoots, the United States, Canada, Australia, um, South Africa, and so forth, that, that we would create models that were different and even economically how we related to one another. Unfortunately, that decolonization project is highlighted by Adam Gatachu, who is, you know, located in, 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 in your area in Chicago, who shows us in the rise and fall of self-determination that, that that's been an unfinished project, that most of these colonial nations shook off the framework of, 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 of colonization, but didn't continue to decolonize by creating the alternative economic systems and not because they didn't try, but also because neocolonialism set in as did debt, as did pressure um, in a way that co-opted these once revolutionary movements into what you describe as, as this Western model. Unfortunately for Palestinians, which has historically been a revolutionary movement, and I chronicle some of this in the, in the essay that you've read from as well, they remain a revolutionary movement until the aftermath of the 19, in, in some would say even before, but it really crystallizes in the aftermath of the October 1973 war when it becomes evident that Syria and Egypt will not wage a conventional war of liberation against Israel, which now there's a recalibration of power in the region. Palestinians are no longer just um, weak, but actually have power. But at the same time, the two largest Arab conventional armies are not going to confront Israel militarily, which forces, you know, catalyzes, I should say, um, a different kind of political thinking amongst pa uh, Palestinian cadre and leadership. In that context, the idea of a Palestinian state is articulated um, by some as the final solution, but obviously not loudly because that would have been treason, but more as, right, it's it's part of a, a multi-step, right, an iterative process towards full liberation of the land and return. By the late 1980s, Palestinians have, the PLO has been routed uh, from Lebanon and now can no longer initiate even cross-border uh, military operations are in um, Tunisia. Um, it's the aftermath of, of a lot of shifts in the region. We see um, other Palestinian forces like Hamas that are actually now competing with the PLO for political prominence. In that context, the PLO agrees to enter into negotiations for this Western-style state um, within the sphere of influence of the United States, mostly, I argue, in order to salvage itself and self, you know, save itself from the mouth of complete irrelevance. Um, and since then, since the advent of what we know as the Oslo peace process, which is a complete farce, right? It's not a peace process. It's a containment program um, under the liberal veneer of peacemaking. Since then, we've seen Palestine shift from a liberation struggle to a statehood struggle, right? Those are not the same thing. Those are not the same thing. The establishment of a state is a form of governance, right? Controlling of borders and maybe citizenship. And then they're negotiating those things where Palestinians don't even have, you know, under the Palestinian leadership, they're, they're, they've even reneged on all of these basic things. Um, as opposed to thinking, what does it mean 
to liberate the land? How is it that we continue a process of decolonization where we're not sim simply seeking to exercise sovereignty on a patch of this land, but we want to rehabilitate our relationship to all of it and allow Palestinians who have been forcibly removed through ethnic cleansing and exile to be able to re return and have those relationships? And now listeners know why I've been trying to get you on the show for so long. That was a fantastic answer. You write that uh, Vivian Sensur's trek has also led her through the social history of a unique wheat plant, which you were just mentioning, the beautiful black whiskers uh, known endearingly by Palestinians as Abu Samra, the dark and handsome one. Israel has forcibly replaced Abu Samra, as you were mentioning, which grows without irrigation and can thrive in deserts with a generic seed variety. Unlike the generic crop, Abu Samra, did more than merely feed Palestinians. It also shaped their social lives and their ties to one another. How does a seed shape social lives and the ties between Palestinians? Is, is there any evidence to suggest that's why Israel forcibly replaced Abu Samra to undermine Palestinians' social lives and ties? Excellent uh, question. So in terms of this particular wheat plant, I'm not I can't say that there's evidence in particular in, in this particular crop, but we do know through a series of military orders, uh, Israeli military orders that directly targeted Palestinian land, agricultural land. Um, confiscated it, prevented Palestinian farmers from reaching those lands um, to actually cultivate it. We do know that the land was, um, it, even in this way, this relationship was a direct target so that they extract the seed perhaps, but then are imposing new forms of production that undermine Right, that undermine a form of sustainability, that undermine a form of social cohesion within a Palestinian community that's dependent on the plant, that undermine ritual that has shaped the lives of Palestinians. That un right, these are all things that create a social fabric. Um, the removal of Palestinians from their land and placing them elsewhere is really the work of of settler colonization, because settler colonization, which obviously revolves around the primary concept of territory seeks to have the greatest amount of land with the least number of natives on it and to concentrate the greatest number of natives on the least amount of lands um and and so part of but but part of that is also to to turn a native population that has relationships to this land into a nondescript population that can be transferred anywhere right and that is the heart of ethnic cleansing it's the heart of a, of 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 denying that a people exists and instead turning shaping them into a motley crew of of uh you know pop the dif distinction let me let me step back the distinction between a population and a people is that a people is a nation that's you know cohesive they share language history they have social order they have they can share a common future social network a, a network that they want to continue to produce in their lives they want to chart a collective future as opposed to a population which is any kind of you know uh any number of people in any one place right the 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 removal of palestinians um from their livelihoods and from their lands in this way is in in very deliberate effort in order to dis uh disintegrate them as a people altogether Right. And it fits part and parcel with the larger project, which now is being echoed at the highest level by Israel's fascist right wing, you know, 
uh, government that wants to transfer Palestinians. Literally, they want to ethnically cleanse the land of Palestinians, and they want to do so by saying, well, they're Arabs. They can go anywhere into one of these other neighboring Arab countries, which is a deliberate attempt to diminish and to deny that these are not merely an ethnic group. It's a national group, an indigenous group, a native group connected to these this particular land and these particular ways of life. You also point out that in her desire to uplift her people's connection to the land, Censor worked with a young Palestinian musician, Zayed Halal, to write and produce a ballad about a love story with our wheat heritage. That song, Abu Samra, is on YouTube and has compelled young people otherwise fascinated with fast food chains to ask to taste our Palestinian history. So you mentioned fast food chains. How much is Palestine affected by the colonialism, if you will, if you think that's even an appropriate word, of uh, corporate fast food chains? Or is colonialism, like I said, the wrong word to describe when discussing young Palestinians' fascination with fast food chains? Is this a form, is fast food in this case in Palestine, a form of colonialism? I mean, I think you're absolutely right. This is a colonial situation, and and we have... We've uh, qualified that to make, you know, make very evident that it's a settler colonial situation, uh, which, you know, is distinct because of the way that the settler comes, right? right? Unlike a settler who, um, in a colonial situation, who leaves their sovereignty in the metropole and travels to these lands in order to govern and to extract and, you know, extract goods, exploit labor. In a settler colonial situation, the settler travels with their sovereignty um, and seeks to replace the native um, in order to, you know, have uncontested settler sovereignty. So that framework is absolutely right. What does fast food have to do with it? I mean, this is part of also what we see in the form of um, global hegemony and the expansion of neoliberal order, where in order to diminish these other forms of lives and livelihood, production of food, how we eat, what we eat, right, this farm um, you know, uh, things that people may know very, are very familiar with even here in the United States far away, which, were, by the way, we're obviously in a settler colony. So it's not that distant, but in the sense that you do not have to be in Palestine to understand that your distance, right, that this manufactured distance between you and the food you eat is done in order to um, facilitate capitalist uh, profits on behalf of you know, corporations that are eager to increase their profits at the expense of sustainability, at the expense of health, right? At the expense of any kind of, of cultural um, uh, groundedness um, and richness, right? It's <laughs> capitalism is, is the end of the world. It is death uh, because it has a singular goal of, of, of an, you know, increasing profits at the expense of all other considerations. So why do you think that hasn't become more a part of the political discussion? Because we, we were having this conversation last year, I believe it was, uh, with a guest who was talking about uh, Egypt and the impact that neoliberalism has had on agriculture in Egypt to the extent that it was a major wheat producing state and now it has to import wheat. And then mm-hmm. the Ukrainian war 
hits, and all of a sudden, all these articles in the paper are about how the inability for Ukraine to get grain to Egypt is causing you know famine and starvation within Egypt because they don't have the supply of food because they've replaced their traditional agriculture, which would have fed their people with a more globalized neoliberal type of agriculture that brings in more profits. So why do you think the pandemic and all this talk about supply lines hasn't revealed to the public more so that globalization and neoliberalism isn't going to work in a time of crisis, especially the crises, uh, not only just of the pandemic, but of the looming and already ongoing crisis of climate change? Why hasn't that supply chain problem been revealed to as a problem of globalization, neoliberalism? I mean, thank God for your program, Chuck, where you center these questions and center, for example, at the top of your program, what would it mean to, you know, to be in in charge of the means of production? And what would we produce, right? But this even kind of discourse is so rare in the media, because our, our, our media Specifically, I would, you know, as somebody located in North America, Turtle Island, our media is is governed by what six large media conglomerates. Those same, you know, boards um, who oversee these media conglomerates have vested interests um, in these other um, in these other companies. These are quite entwined. Where we see a relationship between the information that we know. And, and those same forces who are accumulating these profits so that what we know is what we're allowed to know. Egyptians full force in their revolution, right? In their ouster of Husni and Barak were very clear that this was about land, dignity and bread. They were very clear that this wasn't simply about, right? The civil um, and political rights, but very much about economic and social rights. And yet you would not know that watching the coverage of amongst these media conglomerates as opposed to independent media that basically made the story about ousting an authoritarian Arab leader that worked on all these well-founded tropes that, yeah, Arabs don't know democracy and they have to get rid of an authoritarian leader and now they're going to have a constitution and they can become more like the democracy of the United States and Western democracies, when at the core of this struggle was a struggle over the means of production, was a struggle over distribution and the provision of food, subsidies for bread that used to exist, that was was a struggle over um, the production of how the land would be uh, taken care of. So I think it's not for lack of those who are actually protesting, who are doing the work, they're very much centered this analysis for themselves and for others. But by the time this information is refracted through a media framework and it gets to us, what we're told becomes um, a a self-selected story about um, what we should know. So that Americans only now see Egypt, for example, or the Arab uprisings more generally uh, in a mirror image of their own of their own narratives of self, as opposed to on the terms that Egyptians have narrated. So you also explained that this is a Palestine as lush and rich as the land itself, one that has room for all Palestinians, diverse linguistically, uh, culturally and socially. Vivian Sansour describes this social diversity as biomimicry. It is reflective of a society for which she is willing to fight. You were just mentioning the media. Images we see here in the United States and the establishment media are never of a lush Palestine as much as one that has been completely 
thoroughly destroyed by war, decimated by occupation. How do you think the images the establishment media shares of Palestine affects the outside world's understanding that Palestine was and still can be a Palestine as lush, lush and rich as the land itself? So let me just say that's one of my favorite, you know, and in, in writing this piece, it's a lot of research, obviously, and that's one of the my favorite things that I learn, right? Which is this idea about that in in caring for the land, right, and rehabilitating our relationship to it. Vivian's work is also about, you know, wanting to create a Palestine where all Palestinians can thrive and be. We are a diaspora population, right? Two thirds of our 11 million people live outside of the land of Palestine, either, you know, in forced exile um, or otherwise, and are now, right, we're multilingual, we're multicultural, obviously we're Palestinian, um, and, and, and Arabic remains a primary language, we have traditions that we pass on, but we're quite, quite diverse. What does it mean as a diaspora that is forging a future where we return to that you know, a future Palestine, how are we not returning to something old and in the past, but we're returning to a future that we're creating together that now is reflective of, of, of how Palestinians, who we've become, how we continue to change. And so, you know, Vivian is speaking, you know, to, um, to, to what we grapple with and what the feminists in that article are grappling with, our own social issues, what happens when we turn inwards, as we're trying to create space for everyone, rather than be limited by the shackles of, you know, those um, patriarchal structures um, or other traditional structures that have been historically exclusionary. Not all tradition, right? Not all tradition is just. Some traditions we actually want to change um, and they should change as all cultures are very dynamic. In the sense of what you're saying, do you want me to respond to the other thing? about? Yeah, yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead. Yes. So the media images really quickly, all I'm going to say is, oh, my goodness, I often the most common refrain I get from people who, you know, upon meeting and knowing I'm Palestinian is you don't look Palestinian. And uh, honestly, I look very Palestinian. I look just like all my cousins. I look just like them. a lot of, you know, um, you know, dark skin, dark haired, brown eyed Palestinians. And yet you don't see Palestinians. That's the whole point. And if you see women, you're often seeing women um, who are being, you know, oppressed by by their counterpart. You know, these images are very purposeful, are very manufactured so that the, the idea that you get if you're watching, right, if you don't know, if you don't research, if you don't look, if you're not in alternative media, the message that you get is that one, Palestinians might actually not, not even, you know, might be primordial, might, you know, fit within the savage trope, which is why they're so violent, are not eligible for self-governance. They could hurt, hurt themselves and others, right? This is a constructed uh, framework of Palestinians that works to dehumanize them and certainly racialize them so that we become, and I say we here as those who are, you know, live in on these uh, in North America, we become desensitized to the murder, the systematic murder of, of, of Palestinians, right? Racism and colonialism has primed us to accept and to expect the the mass killing of Palestinians and and the deprivation of their livelihoods. You mentioned that in so doing, Palestinians are moving in tandem with other indigenous communities, increasingly engaged 
in indigenous resurgence. This is a phenomenon, explains Cherokee political scientist Jeff Korntassel, that uh, reframes decolonization by turning away from the state to, quote, focus more fully on the complex interrelationships between indigenous nationhood place-based relationships and community-centered practices that reinvigorate every everyday acts of renewal and regeneration. So I don't, you know, here in the United States, people may not recognize Palestinian people as indigenous. What do we miss in our understanding of Palestinian culture and society when we do not vision it and view it as an indigenous culture and society? Well, here, you know, there's a big question about indigeneity. What does it mean? It has different meanings um, in law and certainly in North America. It has different meanings of how indigenous peoples have been constructed in North America, right? And who we believe them to be and what they should look like and so on and so forth. But, you know, what we're emphasizing is that indigeneity um, and that, that, you know, it means, right, uh, a particular cosmology, a connection to the land, a people that precede the onset of colonization and colonial contact. Um, and so the purpose is not merely to, to not understand who Palestinians are culturally, right? But the purpose is to obscure the fact that um, Zion, Jewish Zionists Jewish Zionists are in fact settlers because in, in Zionist mythology, this is not the colonization of Palestinian lands. This is the redemption of, of Jewish lands and its rehabilitation. And so often you'll hear now Zionists talking about how they're indigenous to the land and they are returning to the land. And that is done very purposefully in order to obscure the fact that they actually are not returning that that's that's a myth that's created in order to facilitate this form of settlement number two it obscures the fact that for people who believe themselves right who claim indigeneity to this region have only sought inclusion within europe i mean david ben-gurion founding prime minister of israel said it himself when he said that israel is part of the middle east in geography only right this wasn't about um necessarily a return in order to you know resurrect and rehabilitate relationship to the arab you know languages of the middle east for example livelihoods to the contrary it was an attempt to earn acceptance within europe and european whiteness in particular uh and and that's reflected in the establishment of israel and its exclusion and racialization of the middle eastern jews who um who were who became Israelis, who were forced right from Iraq and Syria and Yemen and so forth, were literally forced to abandon their Arabic Arabic language and histories and culture in order to be accepted now as Israeli. They had to bifurcate that identity. Um, this is um, I think articulated beautifully in the work of um Ella Shohat, who writes this story about her grandmother's Iraqi Jewish grandmother who was forced to abandon everything that she knew about herself as an Arab in order to earn acceptance as an Israeli. And so, you know, the I, the whole point here is the, the mythology of, of Zionist settler nativity is precisely to obscure the fact that there were people who existed on these lands. 
and that the Israeli project, right, that we um, that has often been lauded in U.S. Um, in in U.S. political thinking as a national liberation project, is a settler colonial project that's predicated on the elimination of an entire native people that is ongoing. Right, it begins with the forced massive expulsion of Palestinians between forty-seven and forty-nine, um, which we know as the Nekba, right, catastrophe and the forced exile of eighty percent of that native population. But that Nekba has never ended and is continuing to this day in the continuing removal of Palestinians in their forced assimilation, in their ethnic cleansing, in their containment within Bantustans in order to establish um, or to, you know, approximate the uncontested um, settler sovereignty of um, Zionists. We are speaking with human rights attorney Nura Urakat, who posted the Boston Review article, Designing the Future in Palestine. Nura is on Twitter at the number 4 Nura, and you can find out more about her at our website. Nura Urakat, you write in for Palestinians at a moment when neither uh, an independent state nor full enfranchisement appear promising. We must ask what can be achieved. Palestinian women are among those trying to answer these questions today. They believe any decolonial vision should begin at home, retrieving a pre-1988 liberatory vision. Emerging Palestinian uh, feminist formations are employing the past to nurture a robust liberation struggle. So there's always a concern when looking towards the past of it becoming too nostalgic. Is this more than nostalgic? Look back at a past, as often happens with nostalgia, being seen through, you know, rose-colored glasses, if you will. Is this more than nostalgia for the past? And is there a danger of it becoming nostalgia? I do not think there's a danger. This is not about nostalgia at all. This is in fact about, you know, it's it's this idea that because we have we because we are under such living under such brutal conditions. I mean, 2 million Palestinians are besieged in the Gaza Strip since 2016. It's a land siege, it's a naval blockade and then subject to systematic onslaught through aerial and ground offensive bombardment, right? With advanced weapons technology um, every few years, we are talking about a population which the World Health Organization told us would be in a situation that is unsustainable by 2020. We're in 2023, right? And so under this, and this is to say nothing of the fact that we're five weeks into 2023 and 41 Palestinians have been killed by state violence with impunity, right? That's more than a person a day. And so I, it's very understandable that for most Palestinians, the primary obsession and concern is how do we remove the Israeli boot from our neck, right? We just want to end these conditions of oppression, these just debilitating conditions of oppression. But what ends up happening is that our concern becomes primarily about Israel, primarily about its means of oppression, primarily about its impunity, primarily about how we resist those very things. And what we lose sight of is, well, who are we? Who are we? And what is it that we're fighting for besides removal of this oppressive situation? When we win, when we are victorious, because we will be victorious, who are we and what does our society look like? And so what these with the Palestinian Feminist Collective and what other collectives like Talat is doing is turning inwards to look internally what what is life like for uh, Palestinians in Palestinian society? 
What is the harm being done to Palestinian girls and women and our queer kin? And what does that say about us and the harm that we pose to one another, even outside of Israel's oppressive framework? And so the moving to the past in order to nurture, it has nothing to do with nostalgia. It's looking to what are the traditions that we have historically known that have made us a, a, a beautiful society, right? A sustainable society um, through feminist practices like sumud, which is the primary reason that we're still here. It's 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 the it's the resilience and being able to be present. That's very much a feminist practice of holding family together. You know, it's a quiet form of resistance that about about our sustainability or the idea of sulah, that we've had restorative justice models that are, you know, alternatives to the imposition of, you know, the state and criminality and punishment that have actually seen, see, you know, sought to restore relations um, in moments of when harm is done. We're, the idea of going back to the past is to resurrect those very things that have enabled our, our survival and our thriving uh, in order to now adapt them to our, con you know, our, our contemporary challenges as we build forge, uh, move forward and forge uh, new societies and new futures. So colonialism destroys, or at least it tries to destroy, uh, those homelands, uh, com communities, and cultures that it occupies. Why is the state more ill-suited to make that reconnection? Why would indigenous nationhood do what the state cannot in bringing about liberation for the Palestinian people? So those things are not necessarily, as a matter of theory, um, you know, mutually exclusive, right? But as we've seen within, and this is why I draw from indigenous um, uh, indigenous studies scholarship, like George, uh, uh, who you cited, John Corntassel, or thinking about Audra Simpson and Mohawk Interruptus, who, who who points us to nested sovereignty, or thinking about Glenn Coulthard, very specifically um, in Red Skin, White Masks, who talks about the, the shortcomings of a politics of recognition. The problem with the statehood model amongst indigenous people that in order to be this in order to achieve that statehood you must be recognized by other states primarily by the settler sovereign itself the settler sovereign is not going to allow that recognition right is not going to 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 grant excuse me that recognition on native terms but instead on their own terms and so set up a series of 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 conditions we recognize you if your society is modeled like this. We recognize you when your economy looks like this. We recognize you if you completely demilitarize and, and vow not to struggle against us as the settler sovereign. We recognize you and so on and so forth. So that privileges are granted to the natives from the settler sovereign um, in, you know, in a in a in a in a model that never are tantamount to freedom. We now just become trapped within this this model of of recognition what i call the sovereignty trap and so this is precisely what the palestinian authority has done in its pursuit of statehood it has acquiesced to all israeli and american demands u.s demands um in exchange for incremental privileges right you'll get your taxes released that you collect from palestinians we'll give you these these grants so that you can pay um uh your population their salaries will allow your leaders to fly on these flights and actually to get visas right these incremental amounts of privileges in exchange 
for our self-subjugation in a framework where even if we complete everything that the settler sovereign and their imperial patron have demanded of us, we will never achieve liberation. We will forever be trapped. So we don't know the answer of how we get out of that trap. It's not quite clear. We're also living in a world where neoliberalism and imperialism, right, have become manifest. And now even where, you know, fascism um, has become not the exception, but increasingly, you know, a rising, uh, a rising trend across the globe and not just in the United States and Israel. And so at this moment, how is it that we get out of this trap? Well, I'm searching for those answers in many places, not least of which is in, well, what is our, what does it mean when we turn to one another and create our own models of society? How do those practices actually create the pathways for us to get out of those traps without simply asking for, 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 for our settler sovereign to grant it to us? You also point out that nearly all post-colonial states today successfully supplanted colonial domination with native rule, yet domination persists. And you were pointing this out earlier, even in South Africa, black majority assuming power has not undone the harms of colonialism, as been pointed out by historian Gerald Horn on our show. Severe economic stratification, gender-based uh, violence, and xenophobia, and as you were mentioning about uh, scientist Adon Gadeshu, uh, reminds us national independence was only the predicate element of decolonization. The ultimate goal was to topple imperialism and create alternative societies, economies, and uh, uh, political forms of governance. It remains unfinished business, as you were saying. Do you think that not only the Palestinian cause, but those who oppose colonialism worldwide need to recalibrate toward a position of global anti-imperialism to issue criticisms of individual states or governments? Can a message of anti-imperialism toward, say, Israel circumvent claims that such a critique is in some way an opposition toward Judaism and those who practice the religion? Number one, I absolutely think that we have, we've not finished our project of decolonization of, of all these lands. I mean, South Africa is a great, great, great example because often South Africa is poised as the model for Palestinian liberation and how they overcome came apartheid. But I join many of my other um you know, contemporaries who think about South Africa actually as the lesson that Palestinians should learn from. We do not want to make their mistake. In South Africa, it was constitutional reform um, and juridical reordering whereby, whereby, you know, Black natives and, and the Black majority assumed sovereignty, but never redistributed the means of production never um, engaged in a project of reparation for, for harms done, never recreated um, the country in its own image, never changed its, you know, educational curriculum, for example, or even its judicial models of, of, of resolving conflict and interpersonal harm, so to speak. And so South Africa today, if you visit, is a site of extreme disparity, right? Um, economic disparity where you buy, you see uh, an elite that continues to be predominantly white um, and an impoverished population that is predominantly black. And so many people, you know, I won't go to, so far as to, you know, I, I've not, some might say that it's actually worse than in apartheid because people don't understand, don't no longer have a grasp of how bad their situation is, but at the very least are, are saying, we're not done. This is neo-apartheid. 
right? This is neo-apartheid. And just like as in South Africa, where the struggle continues, I think that the decolonial struggle continues um, globally. And certainly our primary, our primary struggle is a united struggle, which brings us together in joint struggle with many Palestinians and joint struggle with many other communities. Our enemy is common. We are battling together against imperialism. Whereas you say, if we framed it in this way, would people understand that this is not about Judaism? It doesn't matter how we're framing it, Chuck. We're, we're, we have the words, we have vision statements, we have language, we're in joint struggle. The fact that we are maligned, right? And our struggle is maligned and we are, you know, condemned to, we can be nothing more in our, in our struggle for freedom. People have been so perverted as to say that our entire struggle for freedom is just uh, uh, an ulterior motive to hate Jews, right? All of this is propaganda. All of this is propaganda, you know, used in order to um, put the masses to sleep so that they don't rise in, in, in agitation and revolt alongside us in what is very clearly and uh, very, very unequivocally a freedom struggle. So our work is to continue to help one another to survive, to protect ourselves and one another in order to continue to struggle against our conditions of unfreedom, as well as to create these alternative models against all odds. And in that process, also to communicate this. We're communicating it through media. We're communicating it through our grassroots work. We're communicating it in, in you know, as I do along with others in the form of knowledge production and scholarship uh, within the university. All of these are iterative steps. We can measure the accomplishments that we've made, but I think, you know, as with any struggle, so much can be done on the symbolic realm that hasn't translated on the ground because even today, as we've seen, you know, we were able to talk about Palestine more freely, the conditions on the ground are worse than ever. So there's, this is, this is, I think, the nature of struggle um, and we must persist. And I really appreciate uh, the space that you're creating and, and this very thoughtful engagement uh, that you're undertaking to deepen our knowledge of this. So it's, you know, those who who live here can become involved and understand that they are part of the problem and they can be part of the solution. So you also mentioned that uh, while most mainstream organizations have only recently realized Israel's territorial ambitions and singular jurisdiction between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea, Palestinians have contended with the de facto existence of a single repressive state since the peace process collapsed in the early 2000s. It took nearly two decades when Israel passed the 2018 nation-state law, which enshrined Jewish supremacy as a constitutional principle and reserved self-determination as an exclusive right for Jews. For It took a long time for several legacy human rights organizations to concede the point Palestinians had been making. Between 2020 and 2021, Yashtin, Bishalam, uh, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, all issued reports concluding that Israel's uh, uh, it, that Israel oversees a de jure apartheid regime. Why do you think they are only realizing this now? What took them so long and what changed? What changed in 2020 and 2021 for these human rights organizations to finally recognize what Israel's plan was for Palestine? Uh, there's a few things. One, I mean, obviously, it's very ironic that within these organizations, there have always been voices that have pushed for this framework of apartheid, making clear that they're really that this really is a racist, you know, settler colonial project. Um, and yet the very people 
who have, you know, then claimed the pride for putting out the reports were the very same gatekeepers that prevented that discourse from being articulated, right? I think that we need to be very mindful that this was not suddenly, you know, coming across certain texts that like, oh my God, I didn't know that this existed. It was literally coming to terms with the fact that Israel will not save itself, right? That the, this fantasy of a liberal Zionist framework whereby Israel will limit its settler sovereignty to the 1967 borders, right? And, and allow Palestinian sovereignty uh, um, in 22% of their historical lands, which was this, you know, this liberal fantasy that you can, uh, this is how you can resolve the issue through some sort of political compromise, obviously at the expense of the right of return of Palestinians, obviously at the expense of a decolonial um, project that would retell our story of Nekba and um, reject the story, uh, the Zionist mythology that they were coming to a land without a people for a people without a land. Even that liberal, once that liberal fantasy, right, was shattered. And it was shattered, it was shattered when Israel made clear that um, it will, it, it is actually moving more to the right and farther and farther away um, from this possibility. I mean, I personally think this was never a reasonable, that's why I call it a fantasy, because even Yitzhak Rabin, who entered into negotiations with Palestinians and signed the peace agreement, said unequivocally, there will never, ever, 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 ever be a Palestinian state. It was never on the table. So that the fantasy existed was really about self-delusion. And I think that by the time we get to 2020, when it's clear that the two-state solution is dead, when it's clear that all Israeli officials from the right and the left have made, not, not the left, I'm sorry, the, the uh, left of center, um, have made clear that there uh, will never be a, a robust uh, Palestinian state. When they passed the nation state law in 2018, declaring that there's only Jewish sovereignty on these lands and that settlement is a constitutional principle, right? Um, that you just you just couldn't keep up the lie anymore. Right. You could not keep up the lie anymore. And I think that these organizations jump, jumped ship at a moment where they realized that they had to be on the right side of history. Otherwise, they would be rewritten into uh, the consecration of a de jure apartheid uh, regime. So I think for me, the way that I see it is it was more for expedience than it was. Um, they, they had to. They had to in order to, to save themselves from this moment. Part of the reason that it was even possible to for for this to for them to keep on this liberal fantasy for so long was really this the systematic rejection of Palestinian knowledge, Palestinian scholars, Palestinian activists, Palestinian theorists, public intellectuals have been saying the same thing over and over and over since before '67. And it's the erasure of this knowledge and a lack of willingness to engage with Palestinians um, and allow them to be experts in this field that has also made uh, this outcome possible. We have been speaking with human rights attorney Nura Urakat, who posted the Boston Review article, Designing the Future in Palestine. Nura is on Twitter, at 
for Nura, and you can find out more about her at her website, Nura Urakat. One last question for dot com. Uh, one la- one last question for you, Nura. And as we do with all of our guests, I promise our final question is what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. And I think there's some people in the audience who are going to hate. Wow, what is this? <laughs> I think there's people. some people are going to hate this. Uh, th- your response to this question who are listening in our audience right now, even though I know I will not. Uh, you write this current impasse has begun a new conversation about decolonization, a process that supersedes both state sovereignty and human rights. At its heart, this project represents an analytical return to understanding the ideology of Zionism rather than the state of Israel as the problem. How can you be, uh, how can you disconnect the ideology of Zionism from the state of Israel to recognize that as the problem? How can you be uh, opposed to or critical of Zionism, but not necessarily of an Israeli state? How can both occur at the same time? I think obviously, if you understand the situation, you do you do are critical of both of them. But the the risk is is uh, absolving Zionism while criticizing Israel. And and what I am making clear here is that Israel is the manifestation of a Zionist vision. And what we miss in only focusing on Israel is what is the ideology that underpins this vision and sustains the dehumanization of Palestinians, their um, an, an eliminatory framework that has marked them for removal and ethnic cleansing and the taking of their lands. And so if we only focus on Israel, I'm, you know, the, the risk is we do what we've done in South Africa or what we did in the United States in order to address racial inequality, which is constitutional reform. Let's just change the laws. And so now it just becomes illegal um, to, to, to be racially discriminatory, but we're not addressing the root causes of what brought us to this moment. And those root causes are based in ideology. They're not just based in a governance structure. And so we actually, for that the emphasis here is we have to actually study Zionism as an ideology. And as um, we have demonstrated and has been demonstrated by a number of Palestinian scholars, most notably Fayez Sayer in 1965, and then affirmed by the United Nations in 1975, Zionism is a form of racism. Zionism is a form of racism and racial discrimination on par with apartheid, right? It's not a form of apartheid. It's on par with apartheid and colonialism and other forms of of, of racism, as was articulated in 1975. We have to contend with that in order to be able to achieve a different kind of outcome that's um, just and that's equitable and one that doesn't create a model of mutual exclusivity that it's either you know i one side wins one side loses but actually creates a model of mutual reinforcement where all of us all of us can win once we abandon um these i once we abandon the idea that that only one can rule and instead pivot to a framework where we can all belong 
Best answer to the question from Hal so far this year, Nura. Congratulations. That was really fantastic. I really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, human rights attorney Nura Arakat again posted the Boston Review article, Designing the Future in Palestine. And even though we've been talking to her for 48, 50 minutes right now, that we only scratched the surface. There's so much more to this article, and I strongly su- suggest that all of our listeners go check out Nura's writing. You can follow her on Twitter, at 4 and you can find out more about her at her website, Nura. Uracot.com. Thank you so much for being on our show today. This truly is an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Chuck. I enjoyed it tremendously. Thank you. All right. Enjoy your weekend. Money is the root of all evil and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. If what you just heard from Nur Arakat on the continued colonialism being imposed on Palestinians, if that made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our Patreon podcast, which airs this week on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell on Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago, Chicago time, podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash thisishell. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, when we take over the means of production, what can we produce once in a while as a treat? By the way, on Patreon, just so you know, there's one more that was added just recently at the very bottom of the list on Patreon. All right, we got some we got some new juice on Patreon. I'll, yeah. I'll go dial that up. All right. But at Facebook, for example, we've got David Z saying Labrador indirectly. Do you know what he's talking about? No. I'm worried that we're exchanging messages between spies. Yeah, I didn't know what that was about either, and I couldn't determine well, it wasn't capitalized, so it's not the region in Canada, Labrador. Yeah. So maybe a dog? It's like a numbers station. I have no idea. No idea. John T. more cogently says low-fat, low-sodium pizza with a low glycemic index that still tastes good. That's not possible. That's the dream. Susan M. says therapy. (laughs) Ladio says Karl Marx rum balls. Actually, they're really just rum balls, but with Karl Marx attached. Okay. Warren L. says long, boring speeches. Dan K. says oppression. I don't know why we would do that. (laughs) Kim G. says spy balloons. They've been in the news. Genevieve H. says a new car. (laughs) Jamie Jamie K. says Soylent Green. And Johnny says, Jamie, just watched that movie last week. I have not seen it. Don't know that movie either. It's probably great. Over at Twitter, Rich White Man says Twinkies. (laughs) Old pal. I like how Rich White Man says in parentheses Dick Whitman. Yeah. Oh, is that the, uh, that's the handle. I just did his little screen name. I just like that. I thought it was pretty funny. Dick Whitman. <laughs> All right. I like that too. <laughs> Old pal Eat Fart 69 says, Pinto cruising wagons. Been on the hunt for one. <laughs> Foreign resident says, Universal healthcare cupcakes. And uh, Marin County Confidential says, Warm spiced apple mini cake and parenthetically adds i have a small dash oven on my boat home and can conf- and can confirm it costs very little to make a soulfully nourishing treat <laughs> to beat back the winter cold <laughs> all right we'll get to the rest of your answers to the question from hell following jeff dorch into the moment of truth keeping it real real deep in debt since 1996 this is hell and if you want to help us get out of that debt subscribe to our patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell on this week's patreon as i mentioned on this week's show i saw a weather report on fox news stating january was the warmest month on record and february likely will be too and the anchors at fox called that good news 
Then earlier this week on local Chicago TV news, uh, an anchor who uh, was just absolutely elated, you might even say giddy, about a prediction of temperatures in the 50s in February, which should instead frighten the hell out of all of us. But that's the kind of climate change denialism we need if we do not want to hold the system that caused global warming accountable for being so destructive to us and the planet. We are surrounded by this propaganda seemingly every minute of every day with the private sector working hard with government compliance to keep us all in denial of the role that the system is playing in every one of the planet's greatest threats from extreme weather to pandemics and wars like those we see taking place all over the world, but most go unreported. The United States needs us to accept the myth of exceptional especially the myth of innocence, but it also needs us to accept the fairy tale that there is no alternative to constant economic growth if we want to provide for people worldwide. And that denialism is on full display in reactionary attacks on teaching history. They want to make a fairy tale fact by indoctrinating students in a false understanding that is nothing but partisan rhetoric that legitimizes things like, you know, genocide, slavery, and wars that are claimed to be liberatory, but in reality are nothing more than occupation. Also on Patreon, we will be playing an interview from December 16th, 2006, when we spoke with Neil DeMoz, a media critic at Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, who had just posted the article, The Smell of Success After 10 Years of Welfare Reform, Ignoring the Human Impact. He had also posted the story, Katrina's Vanishing Victims, Media Forget the Rediscovered Poor, Keep in mind, this when we were doing that interview in 2006, this was a time when nobody saw any problem with Clintonian welfare reform, which devastated the lives of the poor. It was also when numbers of those who died in Katrina were being severely undercounted, and still are, which is the opposite of what happened following 9-11, and the number of those who died dropped daily from exaggerated estimates that were as high as 25,000 estimates that were being broadcast on all the TV networks, even before the second building collapsed. But the only way you can hear all of that is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Again, coming up, Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth. The rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We're announcing the winner. We'll tell you what's happening on next week's show. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. And I know you have Hefe on the line. The Fountain of Perimenopause. This one's for the ladies. It's about that model of Victorian-era womanhood, Queen Victoria. She ruled during England's most appallingly violent and nostalgically pined for periods of global colonialism. But it wasn't all blood, quinine, and glory. It was also the apotheosis of European royal inbreeding. But it wasn't all inbred monarchs presiding over racist colonial violence and drinking gin and complaining about the savages and the beastly heat. It was also a time of behind-the-scenes Downton Abbey-style upstairs-downstairs soap opera angst. In 1861, Queen Victoria lost both her husband, Prince Albert, and her mother. The loss of her mother was a source of grief, no doubt, but to lose Albert, the love of her life, sent her into an extended state of mourning. She was just coming out of it in 1878 when her daughter, the Grand Duchess of Hesse, died. The following year, she turned 60. The combined traumas caused her to remark on having begun to feel her age. The loss seemed to be somehow making the years accumulate more rapidly than they were for less tragic monarchs. 
Two years later, her close friend and political ally, Benjamin Disraeli, who'd been born Jewish, died Anglican. Two years after that, her confidant over two decades, John Brown, one of her less barbaric Scottish subjects, rumored to also have been her lover, passed away. At around the same time, she suffered a fall that left her with chronic rheumatism, and one year to the day after the death of Brown, her youngest and favorite son, Leopold, died. In 1885, the recalling of Gladstone, whom she despised, to the office of Prime Minister, and his whiplash reversal in 1886, although concluding in results she favored, really took the stuffing out of the old bird. She passed the golden jubilee of her reign with fanfare and overall national popularity, but it was clear by this time that being old was making her unhappy. Mood-wise, she was not aging gracefully. Sometime near the end of the 1880s, in secret, with her latest confidant, Abdul Karim, by her side, Victoria traveled to the wilds of deepest, darkest Ireland. This wasn't her first trip to the Emerald Isle, and it wouldn't be her last, but the errand she pursued on this particular sojourn was kept concealed from all but Karim. Abdul, who probably was never her lover but was rumored to be, was called the Munshi, because he served Her Majesty as a source of world news and contributor of Muslim Indian analytical, philosophical, and linguistic teachings. It's speculated that Kareem was the source of the information that sparked the idea for the voyage. After crossing the Irish Sea by Stanley-less steamer, they made their way through hostile Catholic territory by night. Karim, the Munshi, had rendered himself fluent in Irish Gaelic the week before, so having dyed his beard and hair red, he was able to pass himself off as a native Irishman who happened to have a birthmark covering his entire body. The queen had lost a great deal of the weight she had put on during her years mourning Albert at all, and as she didn't fit the rotund stereotype the Irish had in mind of the current British monarch, her only problem in remaining unrecognized was keeping her visible disgust over proximity to the Aran people to a minimum. She also had a great fear of leprechauns, but once assured they weren't real, her fears only caused problems on nights when her imagination ran away with itself. At such moments, to avoid coming into contact with either the real or imaginary Irish, she could also hide behind more objects than she could have during her period of more generous avoir du poids. Trekking across the countryside over hill and dale in this slapstick fashion, they came to County Kilkenny. It was in downtown Kilkenny proper where they found what they were looking for. It was a spring the source of water for the Smithicks Brewery, rumored to have rejuvenating properties. Legends ran along the lines of those that had once inspired Ponce de Leon to wander the Everglades, sipping from random swamps in search of the Fountain of Youth. Sadly, the immediate effects were nothing to write home about, so Victoria and her Munchi headed for home rather than write, feeling defeated. In Kareem's view, the rumors of the water's properties had most likely been started by imbibers of Smithick's ales who believed they were younger during times of extreme drunkenness. He had witnessed several shillelagh-wielding altercockers trying to make time with bonnie lasses at the pub at closing time. Victoria was pouty all the way across the sea to Liverpool, but on the way from there to Windsor Castle, she began to notice some changes. 
We think it's working, Albert, she told her Munchi with excited, regal plurality on their fourth day back in the palace. The Munchi was doubtful, but his diary that day records that he did notice a tightening and shrinking of the pair of flappy waddles usually dangling from her throat. Unfortunately, when the transformation was finally complete, she was only 20 years younger. At her ripe age, that wasn't much of a rewind. The queen had completed the full transition to menopause sometime when she was 61 years of age. The entire preceding decade of her 50s had been spent suffering the transitional hormonal changes of perimenopause. It was back to the starting line of that life stage of hot and cold flashes and unexpected mood swings that she now returned. She was disappointed, and her disappointment turned to fury. Then back to disappointment, then fury again, then she was briefly cheerful, then a crying jag, then mild disappointment, then strong disappointment. Menopause was a walk in the park compared to this load of bollocks, she shrieked, smashing the Fabergé egg given her by the Tsar to bits, although that gift would not be made until nine years later. Such was the temporal confusion into which Her Majesty was hormonally and magically thrown. So chaotic was her sense of time at this point that she smashed the same egg twelve years later that she'd already destroyed. She was beside herself, at one point rather literally, and yet it was most likely due to those two extra decades, one of them a reliving of the most difficult of her life that allowed her to become the longest reigning monarch of England until that record was broken by Elizabeth II, who knows what deal with the devil Elizabeth made. I thought that crone would never kick the bucket. So, ladies... Let the super true tale of Victoria and Abdul be a lesson to be careful what you wish for. Hey, don't get mad at me. I'm just a messenger. Jeez, bite my head off, why don't you? Why are you getting so emotional? Damn, take a chill pill. And that has been the moment of truth. Good day. That was brilliant, and uh, we're up against the clock. So, Well, uh, whose fault is that? The IDF? Yeah, no, it's all That's not. who I blame. <laughs> The Individual Defense Fund? That's crazy. All right, <laughs> Jeffy, until next time. What? Stay beautiful. Oh, uh, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> Live from Lance Stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from Hell, and do we have any more answers to share with the listening audience? Yeah, we have a few more. This week's Sweet. question from Hell is when we take over the means of production, what can we produce once in a while as a treat? Over at Patreon, one close to my heart, we've got... <laughs> Teen and S saying a few little comics and wacky zines that will never be sold for a profit, but can be handed out for free just for the joy of it. And while we're at it, let's plug your zine. Issue 32 of the 50 Flip Experiment just dropped to uh, mailboxes everywhere. I wonder if Laura... We uh, just got ours. That actually was just very much damaged in the mail, and it came in one of those plastic bags that the uh, post office says we apologize for. Oh, no. Was it all goofed up? It, it was Not of... really. Oh, okay. It was, but it was just a weird thing to get in the mail when you get those plastic bags. You know? That's neat. Uh, and then uh, finally over at Facebook, SLS brings us home... <laughs> With a hearty, your mom. <laughs> Thank you, Essel. The answers I liked most were uh, on FBook, uh, Kim G saying spy balloons, Dan K saying oppression, Warren L saying long, boring speeches, Susan M saying therapy. On Twitter, foreign resident saying universal health care cupcakes, rich white man, a.k.a. Dick Whitman. 
<laughs> saying Twinkies, and uh, Neil C. saying the Barbie and Ken luxury communist playhouse Barbie dressed in Bolshevik red, and Ken sporting a gray beard and a manifesto. So, any of those really stick out to you there, Dan? I mean, I've got to have Zine Weirdo Solidarity and, and choose the Zine one, right? Yeah, all right, Ty S., you are the winner of this week's question from Al. Can you uh, pull up Ty's answer real quick so we can repeat it one more time? Very definitely. Ty S. says that uh, once the revolution comes and we seize the means of production, the one thing that we're going to do as a treat is produce a few little comics and wacky zines that will never be sold for profit, but can be handed out for free just for the joy of it. And thank you again, Ty S., for suggesting last week's guest, Rachel Garbus, uh, talking about uh, ending Cop City and the defense of the Atlanta Forest. Stop Cop City, that is. Congratulations. Just tell us, uh, Ty, what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want. We'll get it in the mail to you immediately. Everybody can see all of our stuff right now at thisishell.com when they click on support. My answer to this week's question of, of when we take over the means of production, what can we produce once in a while as a treat? I'm going with red meat, which should be only a once in a while part of our diet anyway. And that probably pisses off both vegetarians and meat eaters alike. But we warned you, this is hell. Dan, who are our confirmed guests for next week? Next week's guests are political science scholar Clarence Lusane, who will be on to talk about his Truth Out article, January 6th report obscured the role of racism in the Stop the Steal movement. And then, unbelievably, we have somebody from West Point. Yeah, this is kind of weird. We also got Elizabeth Samet, author of Looking for the Good War, American Amnesia and the Violent Pursuit of Happiness. Elizabeth is a professor of English at, no joke, West Point. West Point. Go figure. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when I'll be going down the deep hole of denialism that permeates so much of society in the U.S. and our misunderstanding of the world. And we're playing an interview from 2006 with Neil DeMoz, who had just posted the articles The Smell of Success After 10 Years of Welfare Reform, Ignoring the Human Impact, and Katrina's Vanishing Victims, Media Forged, or Media Forgot the Rediscovered Poor. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.